Chapter Twenty, Part One of Two, of Herndon's Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Mosley. Herndon's Lincoln by William H. Herndon and Jesse William Wyke. Section 33. Chapter 20, Part 1. Soon after the death of Mr. Lincoln, Dr. J. G. Holland came out to Illinois from his home in Massachusetts to gather up materials for a life of the dead president. The gentleman spent several days with me, and I gave him all the assistance that lay in my power. I was much pleased with him and awaited with not a little interest the appearance of his book. I felt sure that even after my long and intimate acquaintance with Mr. Lincoln, I never fully knew and understood him, and I therefore wondered what sort of a description Dr. Holland, after interviewing Lincoln's old-time friends, would make of his individual characteristics. When the book appeared, he said this, quote, the writer has conversed with multitudes of men who claim to know Mr. Lincoln intimately, yet there are not two of the whole number who agree in their estimate of him. The fact was that he rarely showed more than one aspect of himself to one man. He opened himself to men in different directions. To illustrate the effect of the peculiarity of Mr. Lincoln's intercourse with men, it may be said that men who knew him through all his professional and political life offered opinions as diametrically opposite as these, viz., that he was a very ambitious man, and that he was without a particle of ambition, that he was one of the saddest men that ever lived, and that he was one of the jolliest men that ever lived, that he was very religious but that he was not a Christian, that he was a Christian, but did not know it, that he was so far from being a religious man or a Christian that the less said upon that subject the better, that he was the most cunning man in America, and that he had not a particle of cunning in him, that he had the strongest personal attachments and that he had no personal attachments at all, only a general good feeling towards everybody, that he was a man of indomitable will, and that he was a man almost without a will, that he was a tyrant, and that he was the softest-hearted, most brotherly man that ever lived, that he was remarkable for his pure-mindedness, and that he was the foulest in his jests and stories of any man in the country, that he was a witty man, and that he was only a retailer of the wit of others, that his apparent candor and fairness were only apparent, and that they were as real as his head and his hands, that he was a bore, and that he was in all respects a gentleman, that he was a leader of the people, and that he was always led by the people that he was cool and impassive, and that he was susceptible of the strongest passions. 
it is only by tracing these separate streams of impression back to their fountain that we are able to arrive at anything like a competent comprehension of the man or to learn why he came to be held in such various estimation men caught only separate aspects of his character only the fragments that were called into exhibition by their own qualities i beg to note here in passing the estimate of lincoln's mind and character by one of his colleagues at the bar in springfield who still survives but whose name for certain reasons i am constrained to withhold i still retain the original manuscript written by him twenty years ago Quote, i am particularly requested he says to write out my opinion of the mind of abraham lincoln late president of the united states and i consent to do so without any other motive than to comply with the request of a brother lawyer for if i know myself no other motive would induce me to do it because while mr lincoln and i were always good friends i believe myself wholly indifferent to the future of his memory the opinion i now have was formed by a personal and professional acquaintance of over ten years and has not been altered or influenced by any of his promotions in public life the adulation by base multitudes of a living and the pageantry surrounding a dead president do not shake my well-settled convictions of the man's mental caliber physiologically and phrenologically the man was a sort of monstrosity his frame was large long bony and muscular his head small and disproportionately shaped he had large square jaws large heavy nose small lascivious mouth and soft tender bluish eyes i would say he was a cross between venus and hercules i believe it to be inconsistent with the laws of human organization for any such creature to possess a mind capable of anything called great the man's mind partook of the incongruities of his body he had no mind not possessed by the most ordinary of men it was simply the peculiarity of his mental and the oddity of his physical structure as well as the qualities of his heart that singled him out from the mass of men his native love of justice truth and humanity led his mind a great way in the accomplishment of his objects in life that passion or sentiment steadied and determined an otherwise indecisive mind dr holland had only found what lincoln's friends had always experienced in their relations with him that he was a man of many moods and many sides he never revealed himself entirely to any one man and therefore he will always to a certain extent remain enveloped in doubt even those who were with him through long years of hard study and under constantly varying circumstances can hardly say they knew him through and through i always believed i could read him as thoroughly as any man 
and yet he was so different in many respects from any other one i ever met before or since his time that i cannot say i comprehended him in this chapter i give my recollection of his individual characteristics as they occur to me and allow the world to form its own opinion if my recollection of the man destroys any other person's ideal i cannot help it by a faithful and lifelike description of lincoln the man and a study of his peculiar and personal traits perhaps some of the apparent contradictions met with by dr holland will have melted from sight mr lincoln was six feet four inches high and when he left the city of his home for washington was fifty-one years old having good health and no gray hairs or but few on his head he was thin wiry sinewy raw-boned thin through the breast to the back and narrow across the shoulders standing he leaned forward was what may be called stoop-shouldered inclining to the consumptive by build his usual weight was one hundred and eighty pounds his organization rather his structure and functions worked slowly his blood had to run a long distance from his heart to the extremities of his frame and his nerve force had to travel through dry ground a long distance before his muscles were obedient to his will his structure was loose and leathery his body was shrunk and shriveled he had dark skin dark hair and looked woe-struck the whole man body and mind worked slowly as if it needed oiling physically he was a very powerful man lifting with ease four hundred and in one case six hundred pounds his mind was like his body and worked slowly but strongly hence there was very little bodily or mental wear and tear in him this peculiarity in his construction gave him great advantage over other men in public life no man in america scarcely a man in the world could have stood what lincoln did in washington and survived through more than one term of the presidency when he walked he moved cautiously but firmly his long arms and giant hands swung down by his side he walked with even tread the inner sides of his feet being parallel he put the whole foot flat down on the ground at once not landing on the heel he likewise lifted his foot all at once not rising from the toe and hence he had no spring to his walk his walk was undulatory catching and pocketing tire weariness and pain all up and down his person and thus preventing them from locating the first impression of a stranger or a man who did not observe closely was that his walk implied shrewdness and cunning that he was a tricky man but in reality it was the walk of caution and firmness in sitting down on a common chair he was no taller than ordinary men his legs and arms were abnormally unnaturally long and in undue proportion to the remainder of his body it was only when he stood up 
that he loomed above other men. Mr. Lincoln's head was long and tall from the base of the brain and from the eyebrows. His head ran backwards, his forehead rising as it ran back at a low angle, like Clay's, and unlike Webster's, which was almost perpendicular. The size of his hat, measured at the hatter's block, was seven and one-eighth, his head being from ear to ear, six and one-half inches, and from the front to the back of the brain, eight inches. Thus measured, it was not below the medium size. His forehead was narrow, but high. His hair was dark, almost black, and lay floating where his fingers or the winds left it, piled up at random. His cheekbones were high, sharp, and prominent. His jaws were long and upcurved. His nose was large, long, blunt, and a little awry towards the left eye. His chin was sharp and upcurved. His eyebrows cropped out like a huge rock on the brow of a hill. His long, sallow face was wrinkled and dry, with a hair here and there on the surface. His cheeks were leathery. His ears were large and ran out almost at right angles from his head, caused partly by heavy hats and partly by nature. His lower lip was thick, hanging, and undercurved, while his chin reached for the lip upcurved. His neck was neat and trim, his head being well balanced on it. There was the lone mole on the right cheek, and Adam's apple on his throat. Thus stood, walked, acted, and looked Abraham Lincoln. He was not a pretty man by any means, nor was he an ugly one. He was a homely man, careless of his looks, plain-looking and plain-acting. He had no pomp, display, or dignity so-called. He appeared simple in his carriage and bearing. He was a sad-looking man. His melancholy dripped from him as he walked. His apparent gloom impressed his friends and created sympathy for him, one means of his great success. Lincoln's melancholy never failed to impress any man who ever saw or knew him. The perpetual look of sadness was his most prominent feature. The cause of this peculiar condition was a matter of frequent discussion among his friends. John T. Stewart said it was due to his abnormal digestion. His liver failed to work properly, did not secrete bile and his bowels were equally as inactive. I used to advise him to take blue mass pills, related Stuart, and he did take them before he went to Washington, and for five months while he was president. But when I came on to Congress, he told me he had ceased using them because they made him cross. The reader can hardly realize the extent of this peculiar tendency to gloom. One of Lincoln's colleagues in the legislature of Illinois is authority for the statement coming from Lincoln himself that this, quote, mental depression became so intense at times 
he never dared carry a pocket-knife, Two things greatly intensified his characteristic sadness. One was the endless succession of troubles in his domestic life, which he had to bear in silence, and the other was unquestionably the knowledge of his own obscure and lowly origin. The recollection of these things burned a deep impress on his sensitive soul. As to the cause of this morbid condition, my idea has always been that it was occult, and could not be explained by any course of observation and reasoning. It was ingrained, and being ingrained could not be reduced to rule, or the cause arrayed. It was necessarily hereditary, but whether it came down from a long line of ancestors and far back, or was simply the reproduction of the saddened life of Nancy Hanks, cannot well be determined. At any rate, it was part of his nature, and could no more be shaken off than he could part with his brains. He was gloomy, abstracted, and joyous rather humorous, by turns, but I do not think he knew what real joy was for many years. Mr. Lincoln sometimes walked our streets cheerily. He was not always gloomy, and then it was that on meeting a friend he greeted them with plain howdy, clasping his hands in both of his own, and gave them a hearty soul welcome. On a winter's morning he might be seen stalking towards the market-house, basket on arm, his old gray shawl wrapped around his neck, his little boy Willie or Tad running along at his heels, asking a thousand boyish questions, which his father, in deep abstraction, neither heeded nor heard. Statement by James Gourley Quote, I lived next door to the Lincolns for many years, knew the family well. Mr. Lincoln used to come to our house, his feet encased in a pair of loose slippers, and with an old faded pair of trousers fastened with one suspender. He frequently came to our house for milk. Our rooms were low, and he said one day, Jim, you'll have to lift your loft a little higher. I can't straighten out under it very well. To my wife, who was short of stature, he used to say that little people had some advantages. They required less wood and wool to make them comfortable. In his yard, Lincoln had but little shrubbery. He once planted some rose bushes, to which he called my attention, but soon neglected them altogether. He never planted any vines or fruit trees, seemed to have no fondness for such things. At one time, yielding to my suggestion, he undertook to keep a garden in the rear part of his yard, but one season's experience sufficed to cure him of all desire for another. He kept his own horse, fed and curried it when at home. He also fed and milked his own cow and sawed his own wood. Mr. Lincoln and his wife agreed moderately well. Frequently Mrs. Lincoln's temper would get the better of her. If she became furious, as she often did, her husband tried to pay no attention to her. He would sometimes laugh at her, but generally he would pick up one of the children and walk off. 
i have heard her say that if mr lincoln had remained at home more she could have loved him better one day while mr lincoln was absent he had gone to chicago to try a suit in the united states court his wife and i formed a conspiracy to take off the roof and raise his house it was originally a frame structure one story and a half high when lincoln returned he met a gentleman on his sidewalk and looking at his own house and manifesting great surprise inquired the stranger can you tell me where lincoln lives the gentleman gave him the necessary information and lincoln gravely entered his own premises statement james corley february ninth eighteen sixty six if a friend met or passed him and he awoke from his reverie something would remind him of a story he had heard in indiana and tell it he would and there was no alternative but to listen thus i repeat stood and walked and talked this singular man he was odd but when that gray eye and that face and those features were lit up by the inward soul in fires of emotion then it was that all those apparently ugly features sprang into organs of beauty or disappeared in the sea of inspiration that often flooded his face sometimes it appeared as if lincoln's soul was fresh from its creator i have asked the friends and foes of mr lincoln alike what they thought of his perceptions one gentleman of unquestioned ability and free from all partiality or prejudice said quote, mr lincoln's perceptions were slow a little perverted if not somewhat distorted and diseased End quote. if the meaning of this is that mr lincoln saw things from a peculiar angle of his being and from this was susceptible to nature's impulses and that he so expressed himself, then I have no objection to what is said. Otherwise, I dissent. Mr. Lincoln's perceptions were slow, cold, clear, and exact. Everything came to him in its precise shape and color. To some men, the world of matter and of man comes ornamented with beauty, life, and action, and hence more or less false and inexact no lurking illusion or other error false in itself and clad for the moment in robes of splendor ever passed undetected or unchallenged over the threshold of his mind that point which divides vision from the realm and home of thought names to him were nothing and titles naught assumption always standing back abashed at his cold intellectual glare neither his perceptions nor intellectual vision were perverted distorted or diseased he saw all things through a perfect mental lens there was no diffraction or refraction there he was not impulsive fanciful or imaginative but cold calm and precise he threw his whole mental light around the object and after a time substance and quality stood apart 
form, and color took their appropriate places, and all was clear and exact in his mind. His fault, if any, was that he saw things less than they really were, less beautiful and more frigid. He crushed the unreal, the inexact, the hollow, and the sham. He saw things in rigidity rather than in vital action. He saw what no man could dispute, but he failed to see what might have been seen. To some minds the world is all life, a soul beneath the material, but to Mr. Lincoln no life was individual that did not manifest itself to him. His mind was his standard. His mental action was deliberate, and he was pitiless and persistent in pursuit of the truth. No error went undetected, no falsehood unexposed, if he once was aroused in search of the truth. The true peculiarity of Mr. Lincoln has not been seen by his various biographers, or if seen, they have failed woefully to give it that importance which it deserves. Newton beheld the law of the universe in the fall of an apple from a tree to the ground. Owen saw the animal in its claw. Spencer saw evolution in the growth of a seed, and Shakespeare saw human nature in the laugh of a man. Nature was suggestive to all these men. Mr. Lincoln no less saw philosophy in a story and an object lesson in a joke. His was a new and original position, one which was always suggesting something to him. The world and man principles and facts, all were full of suggestions to his susceptible soul. They continually put him in mind of something. His ideas were odd and original for the reason that he was a peculiar and original creation himself. His power in the association of ideas was as great as his memory was tenacious and strong. His language indicated oddity and originality of vision as well as expression. Words and language are but the counterparts of the idea, the other half of the idea. They are but the stinging, hot, leaden bullets that drop from the mold. In a rifle with powder stuffed behind them and fire applied, they are an embodied force resistlessly pursuing their object. In the search for words, Mr. Lincoln was often at a loss. He was often perplexed to give proper expression to his ideas, first because he was not master of the English language, and secondly because there were, in the vast store of words, so few that contained the exact coloring, power, and shape of his ideas. This will account for the frequent resort by him to the use of stories, maxims, and jokes in which to clothe his ideas, that they might be comprehended. So true was this peculiar mental vision of his, that, though mankind has been gathering, arranging, and classifying facts for thousands of years, Lincoln's peculiar standpoint 
could give him no advantage over other men's labor. Hence he tore down to their deepest foundations all arrangements of facts, and constructed new ones to govern himself. He was compelled from his peculiar mental organization to do this. His labor was great and continuous. The truth about Mr. Lincoln is that he read less and thought more than any man in his sphere in America. No man can put his finger on any great book written in the last or present century that he read thoroughly. When young he read the Bible, and when of age he read Shakespeare, but though he often quoted from both, he never read either one through. He is acknowledged now to have been a great man, but the question is what made him great. I repeat that he read less and thought more than any man of his standing in America, if not in the world. He possessed originality and power of thought in an eminent degree. Besides his well-established reputation for caution, he was concentrated in his thoughts and had great continuity of reflection. In everything, he was patient and enduring. These are some of the grounds of his wonderful success. Not only were nature, man, and principle suggestive to Mr. Lincoln, not only had he accurate and exact perceptions, but he was causative. His mind, apparently with an automatic movement, ran back behind facts, principles, and all things to their origin and first cause to that point where forces act at once as effect and cause. He would stop in the street and analyze a machine. He would whittle a thing to a point and then count the numberless inclined planes and their pitch making the point. Mastering and defining this, he would then cut that point back and get a broad transverse section of his pine stick and peel and define that clocks, omnibuses, language, paddle-wheels, and idioms never escaped his observation and analysis. Before he could form an idea of anything, before he would express his opinion on a subject, he must know its origin and history in substance and quality, in magnitude and gravity. He must know it inside and outside upside and downside he searched and comprehended his own mind and nature thoroughly as i have often heard him say he must analyze a sensation an idea and run back in its history to its origin and purpose he was remorseless in his analysis of facts and principles when all these exhaustive processes had been gone through with, he could form an idea and express it, but no sooner. He had no faith and no respect for say-sos, come though they might from tradition or authority. Thus, everything had to run through the crucible and be tested by the fires of his analytic mind, and when at last he did speak, his utterances rang out with the clear and keen 
ring of gold upon the counters of the understanding. He reasoned logically through analogy and comparison. All opponents dreaded his originality of idea, his condensation, definition, and force of expression. And woe be to the man who hugged to his bosom a secret error if Lincoln got on the chase of it. I repeat, woe to him. Time could hide the error in no nook or corner of space in which he would not detect and expose it. Though gifted with accurate and acute perception, though a profound thinker as well as analyzer, still Lincoln's judgment on many and minor matters was oftentimes childish. By the word judgment, I do not mean what mental philosophers would call the exercise of reason, will, understanding, but I use the term in its popular sense. I refer to that capacity or power which decides on the fitness, the harmony, or, if you will, the beauty and appropriateness of things. I have always thought, and sometimes said, Lincoln lacked this quality in his mental structure. He was on the alert if a principle was involved or a man's rights at stake in a transaction, but he never could see the harm in wearing a sack coat instead of a swallowtail to an evening party, nor could he realize the offense of telling a vulgar yarn if a preacher happened to be present. Sometime in 1857, a lady reader or elocutionist came to Springfield and gave a public reading in a hall immediately north of the State House. As lady lecturers were then rare birds, a very large crowd greeted her. Among other things, she recited Nothing to Wear, a piece in which is described the perplexities that beset Miss Flora McClimsey in her efforts to appear fashionable. In the midst of one stanza, in which no effort is made to say anything particularly amusing, and during the reading of which the audience manifested the most respectful silence and attention, someone in the rear seats burst out into a loud, coarse laugh, a sudden and explosive guffaw. It startled the speaker and audience, and kindled a storm of unsuppressed laughter and applause. Everyone looked back to ascertain the cause of the demonstration, and was greatly surprised to find that it was Mr. Lincoln. He blushed and squirmed with the awkward diffidence of a schoolboy. What prompted him to laugh, no one was able to explain. He was doubtless wrapped up in a brown study, and recalling some amusing episode, indulged in laughter without realizing his surroundings. The experience mortified him greatly. As already expressed, Mr. Lincoln had no faith. In order to believe, he must see and feel, and thrust his hand into the place. He must taste, smell, and handle before he had faith, or even belief. Such a mind manifestly must have its time. His forte and power lay in digging out for himself and securing for his mind 
its own food to be assimilated unto itself thus in time he would form opinions and conclusions that no human power could overthrow they were as irresistible as the rush of a flood as convincing as logic embodied in mathematics and yet the question arises had mr lincoln great good common sense a variety of opinions suggest themselves in answer to this if the true test is that a man shall judge the rush and whirl of human actions and transactions as wisely and accurately as though indefinite time and proper conditions were at his disposal then i am compelled to follow the logic of things and admit that he had no great stock of common sense but if on the other hand the time and conditions were ripe his common sense was in every case equal to the emergency he knew himself and never trusted his dollar or his fame in casual opinions never acted hastily or prematurely on great matters End of section thirty three recording by bill mosley bernardo texas u s a